Good evening. The MTA is hacked. Is China to blame? New York COVID indicators are the lowest in more than a year. President Biden offers free beer for vaccinations and the continuing crisis in Colombia. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. The continuing secret war in the cybersphere spilled over into the Metropolitan Transit Authority system in April. According to a recently released MTA document, a hacking group believed to have links to the Chinese government is a top suspect, according to reports. Transit officials said the hackers didn't gain access to systems controlling train cars and rider safety was not at risk and no damage appears to have been done. MTA officials add no personal information on the increasingly sophisticated and intrusive transit fair collection system was compromised. Governor Cuomo was closed mouth about the attacks, too. Yeah, I don't want to give any more details than have been released at this point. I want to make sure that I don't do anything that would impede the investigation that the MTA is doing. The breach was the third and most significant cyber attack on the transit network by hackers thought to be connected to foreign governments in recent years. The MTA is North America's largest transit system. Last month, a ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline led to precautionary shutdowns of a network stretching from Texas to New York, carrying nearly half the gasoline, diesel and jet fuel for the East Coast, causing panic panic buying across the southeast. Recently, cyber attacks also crippled police departments in Washington, D.C., as well as hospitals treating coronavirus patients. The attack on the MTA didn't involve financial demands and instead But according to cybersecurity firm FireEyes, the attack was apparently carried out by sophisticated hackers backed by the Chinese government. Department of Homeland Security is investigating the breach, but has declined to comment. In related news, JBS, the world's largest meat supplier, says it's resumed the vast majority of its production plants after a cyber attack crippled production in many of its U.S. and Australian-based facilities earlier this week. According to Homeland Security, the attack came from Russia-based hackers. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says President Biden will likely address the hacks during a summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin later this month. On his agenda is, of course, these cyber attacks and the use of ransomware, harboring criminal entities in your own country. Also is their aggressive actions uh, in Ukraine and also is our areas where there can be an opportunity to work together, including nuclear capabilities and security. So lots to discuss. Of all the threats that the White House has to juggle right now, and of course there are a lot, how high does ransomware fall on that list right now? Has it gone dramatically higher in the course of this administration? Does it need to be higher than it is right now? Where is it? You know how I love rank ordering our our focuses oh, and our been, threats? But it's been dramatically, <laughs> obviously, right? This is now... That like, is true. And, I, and, and Peter, I just said that. I, I think that this is a... Uh, the, this attack that we've seen over the last couple of days and certainly uh, following the attack that we saw several weeks ago is also a reminder to the private sector about the need and the importance of uh, hardening their own cybersecurity protections, of investing in and putting in place uh, protections in their own systems. We have given guidance for some time uh, from the federal government, and it is up to a number of these private sector entities to protect themselves as well. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki JBS owns facilities in 20 countries, including 84 in the United States, and is the country's second largest producer of beef, pork, and chicken. 
If his production plants were to shut down for even a day, Michigan State University agriculture professor Trey Malone says the United States would lose almost a quarter of its beef production capacity or the equivalent of 20,000 beef cows, which would be pretty bad for hamburgers, but pretty good for the environment since beef production uses more water than almost any other agricultural production in the United States. New York wants a leader in coronavirus cases. Meanwhile, in Related stories, I guess New York wants a leader in coronavirus cases during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic recorded the lowest coronavirus positivity rate in the country over the last day. Governor Andrew Cuomo made the announcement today. New York State had the highest positivity in the nation. Today, New York State has the lowest positivity of any state in the United States of America. Let's give New Yorkers a round of applause. This is the seven-day positivity, the weekly positivity. New York for the past week, 0.64%. Uh, Massachusetts, 0.68%. Vermont, 079 uh, And that will bounce around from time to time with these numbers. But... Uh, it is extraordinary for New York to understand what New Yorkers have accomplished. We have kept the number down, and that's what this chart points to. The people of New York did it. No one else. It was their behavior. It was their co sense of community. It was their unity that actually turned everything around. Today, 0.61, the ICU rate is down, the intubation rate is down. Is COVID over? No, 11 people still died from COVID and they're in our thoughts and prayers. Again, the number varies from community to community because it depends on that community's behavior. Are they getting vaccines? Are they social distancing? Finger Lakes is the highest in the state of 1.4. You go down to 0 0.56, 0 0.50, but you see the var variance across the state. In New York City, you see the variance, Staten Island at 0.7, Manhattan 0.35. It's always been extraordinary how low Manhattan is. Manhattan has been the lowest positivity in the city for many weeks, and it's hard to explain why. Uh, Manhattan probably is the highest density, but it's something that we're studying for the future. And that's Governor Cuomo. Yet despite the low rates of COVID, Manhattan is pointing to those restrictions, COVID restrictions, to institute early curfews and other restrictions in its parks. Cuomo pointed to the range of events and public gathering places people can once again attend if they are fully vaccinated. The New York Mets are set to offer 90 percent of their seats to fully vaccinated people. He said you'll see other sports teams doing that. You'll see movie theaters starting to do that. You'll see restaurants doing that because it's a safer environment. It's another reason to get the vaccine. And President Joe Biden echoed that. He's looking for that extra something, anything that'll get people to roll up their sleeves for COVID-19 shots when the promise of a life-saving vaccine by itself hasn't been enough. Today, Biden promised, among other perks for vaccinated Americans, free beer for the 4th of July. Since January 20. 
and we're talking now about 15 months ago, the average daily cases are down from 184,000 to 19,000, below 20,000 for the first time since March of 2020. Average hospitalizations are down from 117,000 to 21,000. Death rates are down over 85 percent. And this didn't just happen by chance. We got to this moment because we took aggressive action from day one with a whole of government response. We used every lever at our disposal to get this done. We experienced the production and expanded it in a significant way in life-saving vaccines available for every single American. We're experienced the strongest economic recovery this country has seen in decades. There's a group called the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, which includes most of the world's largest economies in its membership. Just this week, they increased their projection for the U.S. economic growth this year to 6.9 percent. That's the fastest pace in nearly four decades. And that's because our vaccination program and our economic response, which alone are adding three to four percentage points to our growth. If you are unvaccinated, you are still at risk of getting seriously ill or dying or spreading disease to others. COVID deaths are unchanged in many parts of our country that are lagging behind in vaccinations. The bottom line is this. I promise you, they are safe. Getting the vaccine is not a partisan act. We're going to continue encouraging people to get vaccinated with incentives and fun rewards. The state of Ohio had a heck of a fun reward, a new millionaire last week, thanks to the creative idea of the governor for holding a vaccination vaccine lottery. The grocery store Kroger announced that they're going to give away $1 million each week to someone who gets vaccinated at one of their pharmacies. The NBA, the NHL, NASCAR, NASCAR tracks, they're offering vaccines outside playoff games and at races. Major League Baseball will be offering free tickets to people who get vaccinated at the ballpark. And to top it off, Anheuser-Busch announced that beer is on them on July the 4th. That's right. Get a shot and have a beer. Free beer for everyone 21 years or over to celebrate the independence from the virus. Go to wecandothis.hhs.gov. I promise you, we can do this. So please, do your part. Give it your all through July the 4th. Let's reach our 70% goal. Let's go into the summer freer and safer. Let's celebrate a truly historic Independence Day. President Biden, as part of the effort to drive Americans to get shots, the White House is borrowing some tools from political campaigns, including phone banks, door knocking and texting. The administration says more than a thousand such events will be held this weekend alone. Other new incentives include a two million dollar commitment from DoorDash to provide gift cards to community health centers to drive people to get vaccinated. The fine print on the Anheuser-Busch free beer promotion reveals the benefits to the sponsoring company collecting consumer data and photos through its website to register for the $5 giveaway. The company says it'll hand out credits to however many people qualify. And back to world news, and COVID is always a world story, maybe the biggest since World War II. The NATO alliance, forged by the U.S. and its allies after the last world war to counter the then-Soviet Union during the Cold War, is planning a major meeting. 
NATO's foreign foreign and defense ministers were meeting today to lay the groundwork for that first summit with U.S. President Joe Biden, setting aside four tumultuous years with the Trump administration. That meeting is scheduled for June 14th. One of the top issues is Russia. Again, yet again, the main target of NATO since its founding, whose defense minister announced Monday would establish 20 new military units in its western sector to counter NATO expansion on its borders. China and climate change are also on the NATO agenda, as well as how to wind up NATO's operations in Afghanistan. And in the Middle East, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's opponents today announced They've reached a deal to form a new governing coalition, paving the way for the ouster of the longtime Israeli leader. The dramatic announcement by opposition leader Yair Lapid and his main coalition partner, Naftali Bennett, came shortly before a midnight deadline and prevented the country from plunging into what would have been its fifth consecutive election in just over two years. Under the agreement, Lapid and Bennett will split the job of prime minister in a rotation. Bennett will serve the first two years while Lapid is to serve the final two years. The historic deal also includes a small Islamist party, the United Arab List, which would make it the first Arab party ever to be part of a governing coalition. The agreement still needs to be approved by the Neset or parliament in a vote that's expected to take place early next week. Netanyahu has been the most dominant player in Israeli politics over the past 30 years, serving as prime minister since 2009, in addition to an earlier term in the late 1990s. Lapid, 57, entered parliament in 2013 after a successful career as a newspaper columnist, TV anchor and author. Bennett is leader of the West Bank settler movement and a former top aide to Netanyahu. His small Yamina party caters to religious and nationalist hardliners. Their partners range from a pair of... uh, Dovish left-wing parties that support broad concessions to the Palestinians and three hardline parties that oppose Palestinian independence and support West Bank settlements. And last week, Vice President Kamala Harris, Biden's special envoy on immigration, announced commitments from a dozen companies and organizations to invest in Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador as part of the Biden administration's effort to address the root causes of migration from the region. Participants in the new program include corporate giants MasterCard and Microsoft, as well as Pro Mujer, a nonprofit that focuses on providing aid to low-income women in Latin America, along with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the World Economic Forum. Today, the vice president talked about her first trip to the region. On Sunday, she'll arrive in Guatemala before flying to Mexico. Harris says she'll be discussing proposed aid and longstanding problems with corruption in the region. I'll be meeting the front leg of the trip with the president of Guatemala, Giamate, and we have a lot to discuss about what we need to do and can do together to both support the folks who need help in terms of hunger, the economic development piece, the extreme weather, and the impact that has had on their economy. But it's also about having very frank and and honest conversations about the need to address corruption, to address crime, violence, and in particular against some of the most vulnerable populations in that country. But I will bring to that conversation also to bear on this conversation the work that we've done so far here, meeting with and bringing together CEOs, for example, who are prepared to renew or to begin relationship with Guatemala. I will bring to bear on this conversation 
the meetings that we've had with civil society both in the U.S. and there in terms of the need, again, to address long-standing issues that relate to disparities in the country. We will bring to bear on the conversation the commitment that various members of our administration are making through their agencies as cabinet secretaries to renew and, in many cases, to upgrade the kind of resources that we are committing to that region to address the root causes. It's going to be an honest and, and real conversation. I'm there to listen as much as I am to share perspective. Vice President Kamala Harris, the United States State Department country report accuses Guatemala of unlawful or arbitrary killings, including extrajudicial killings arranged by government officials, harsh and life-threatening prison conditions, arbitrary arrests and detention, serious problems with the independence of the judiciary, and unjustified arrests of journalists. And while climate change-driven drought over the past five years has caused crop failures in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, fueling the surge of climate refugees heading to the United States' southern border. Meanwhile, thousands of Colombians took to the streets again today amid a deadlock in talks between the government and leaders of anti-government protests that are stretching into their second month. An umbrella national strike committee made up of unions, student groups, and other civil society organizations is currently in discussions with the government. An associate professor of political science at the National University of Columbia in Medellin is Forrest Hilton. He says the country is being rocked by a mass insurgency. He joined WBAI from Medellin. The best way to summarize it is that it's a nationwide insurrection that's led by young people, mostly without jobs or education of the, or the prospect of either who live in peripheral urban neighborhoods that lack basic services and don't have enough transport. And a lot of these people are not getting enough to eat since the pandemic hit. Basic survival is what's at stake for the majority of the people who are out protesting. And in addition to all these young working class people from the urban peripheries, there is an enormous number of young middle class people who are in pretty precarious circumstances as well. So the youth have been leading the uprising, but it goes far beyond youth and encompasses just about every major social movement and political organization, progressive political organization in Colombia. Are there any specific goals to this insurrection, as you called it? The first goal was to repeal the regressive tax reform package, which they successfully did. The second goal was to repeal the regressive health reform package, which they successfully did. And they also forced the resignation of two ministers. But what they're asking for is the disbanding of the riot police, a reorientation of the national budget away from military spending and towards spending on domestic social welfare provisions and institutions like health and education, housing, jobs, transport, and so forth. They're trying to orient Colombia's economy and politics away from war and away from neoliberalism towards something else that would look like social democracy in line with the 1991 Constitution. President Duque, what's his reaction been to this? He has been refusing to negotiate or dialogue with the demonstrators, and the strategy has been to try to label the demonstrators who are overwhelmingly unarmed and nonviolent, to label them as vandalists and terrorists who threaten the social order so that he can unleash ferocious police repression against them, which is exactly what's happened, much of it under the cover of night. And now he has sent soldiers to 13 different cities in eight different departments throughout the country in order to further militarize the conflict, 
as opposed to sitting down and negotiating in good faith. What does militarizing the conflict mean? What have they been doing? They have been sending soldiers to patrol urban streets. Soldiers have not been called out to the streets. That's been a police problem and a riot police problem until now. And now they have soldiers with automatic weapons patrolling the streets. 7,000 of them are currently in the city of Cali, which has been the epicenter of the protest. And has that led to shootings and all the deaths we've heard about? So far, the shootings have not come from the guns of soldiers in most of the cities, but the soldiers have just been sent to cities in the last couple of days because the murders that took place on Friday, that was a combination of police and civilians firing their weapons alongside the police and coordinating with the police. And again, we emphasize that they're firing live ammunition on unarmed demonstrators and they're killing them, disappearing them. There's a number of bodies and number of people whose whereabouts are unknown. Who are these private citizens who are joining in with the police? Members of wealthy neighborhoods who see potential attacks on their persons and property coming out of these mobilizations. That hasn't happened, but these wealthy and propertied citizens have staged preventive attacks against unarmed demonstrators alongside the police. And they not only have pistols, but they have semi-automatic weapons, rifles, AR-15s. Colombia has a long history of parastate actors participating alongside those who are inflicting state terror against unarmed civilians. How has the U.S. been responding? The U.S. response has been muted so far. There's a number of congressmen and women led by Representative Jim McGovern who are calling for the application of the Leahy provision of foreign aid bills in order to stop the flow of funding and weaponry to the police and the armed forces in Colombia as long as these human rights violations and crimes against humanity are going on. The United Nations, as well as the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, have been demanding independent investigations into the violence that's going on on the part of police against citizens. But the Colombian government so far has not allowed the Inter-American Human Rights Commission in to investigate. There's a movement within Congress to try to get something done about this, but the rhetoric from the Biden administration has been muted and the general response has been to condemn violence on all sides. But the problem with that is that the violence is overwhelmingly one-sided against unarmed demonstrators. Anything you would like to add? In the midst of the tragedy that's ongoing, there's hundreds of disappeared people who are probably being tortured and murdered because that's been the pattern in the past in Colombia's history in spite of terrible darkness which has overtaken Colombia. And that's literal because the worst acts of repression are taking place at night. Nevertheless, there's a lot of hope and inspiration to be taken from this uprising in Colombia. In fact, throughout South America, we've seen national popular uprisings against neoliberalism and against militarized repression. Colombia has long been one of the most conservative countries in the hemisphere and to see this kind of nationwide uprising led by young people is truly inspiring. Forrest Hilton is an associate professor of political science at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. Last week, the two sides reached a so-called pre-agreement. The government said protest leaders need to condemn roadblocks that have caused shortages around the country and hit exports of coffee, coal, and other products, adding the point was non-negotiable. The committee has said it doesn't have sway over all the protesters.
And finally, why do so many conservative Christians continue to support Donald Trump, advocating so vehemently for xenophobic policies like the border wall in Mexico? In their book, Taking America Back for God, authors Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry point to Christian nationalism, the belief the United States is and should be a Christian nation. And we must preserve a particular kind of social order where everyone, Christians and non-Christians, native-born and immigrants, whites and minorities, men and women, recognize their proper place in society. Author Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology and religion at Indiana University. When Trump was running for president and then throughout his administration, we continually heard rhetoric from him and people speaking for him about how he would protect Christianity and make sure that we make America great again and, and keep it Christian. And another example is we can say Merry Christmas again. These promises really appealed to the vast number of Americans who embrace Christian nationalism. And so for them, it's less about whether Trump is a moral, upstanding Christian and more about will he privilege Christianity and give it power in our society. And he was committed to doing that for them. And so for them, it was all about access to power and privilege. Where is the roots of this Christian nationalism? We find that Americans are all across the spectrum. Some embrace it more, some embrace it a little less, and others reject it. And we find that about 20% of Americans uh, strongly embrace Christian nationalism, and another 30% or so are at least friendly with it. Around half of Americans are to some extent supportive of Christianity being privileged in the public sphere in the U.S., well, how did we get here? Christian nationalism and this narrative of the U.S. as a Christian nation or blessed by God or plays a special role, right, in world history in God's eyes, that is a narrative that has been with us, the earliest colonists from Europe coming over. Many of them supported their vision for what they were going to do with this idea that there was something special about the U.S. and that Christianity plays a key role in our national identity. And what we see today really is an extension of the rise of the religious right or the moral majority in the 70s. And they were responding to the cultural upheaval of the 60s with the civil rights movement and gender and sexual revolution. Christian nationalism has been a part of the American body politic for um, really centuries. And it's a narrative and a framework that really appeals to many Americans and really crops up in times of upheaval. So whenever people are searching for who are we, they really quickly will turn to this idea that, well, we're a Christian nation favored by God and use that to their advantage to have a particular say of, of what the U.S. should look like. This doesn't apply to all Christians. No, it doesn't. And that's a key point in our book and that we want to make is that there is a significant minority that reject it. So about 20 percent resist or reject Christian nationalism. And a lot of times it isn't if a person is personally religious. It's whether they embrace Christian nationalism. They may attend church a lot, but if they reject Christian nationalism, they look completely different from fellow Christians who embrace Christian nationalism. What did you see happen on January 6th? This is relate to what you're talking about here. For most Americans, it was very shocking to see what was taking place in the insurrection. But with what we knew and have been studying with Christian nationalism, it wasn't surprising. Support for Trump, conspiratorial thinking, an embrace of violence to achieve a particular end. Really at the heart of it, Christian nationalism is about power and access to power. 
And so for those individuals that were there, when we see the Jesus save signs or they're praying on the Senate floor, their view for the outcome of the election or keeping Trump in power or their view of what the United States is all about, they believe is legitimated by the Christian God. Anything that stands in their way, ultimately, they feel um, should be pushed away to achieve the end that God wants. Even if it is democracy, Christian nationalism has been with us for decades and really centuries. And so it's not going anywhere. Continuing to educate and know what it is and and to see it being used by people in power, I think is important. Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology and religion at Indiana University.